Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Growing up, I discovered most new music through the radio, my older brother, and my friends. At the time, it would have sounded silly to me if someone said that years later, I'd be finding most new music on TV shows and online videos. It was precisely within a YouTube rabbit hole that I came across a live cover of Hey Joe. I was a bit skeptical before I watched it, but walked away deeply impressed by the intensity and skill of the artist. By now, I'm sure you've guessed that the artist was Ben Poole. He's a phenomenal guitarist and singer-songwriter who's played Royal Albert Hall and earned high praise from guitar greats like Jeff Beck, Richie Kotzen, and the late Gary Moore. His music is a vibrant mix of R&B, funk, blues, and rock with a deep soul that belies his youth. Ben is constantly on the road, and I feel fortunate to have had a chance to speak with him. Let's start off by listening to snippets from a few of his songs. I know you've heard things about me And I wish I could say that the room was wild for real I know it would be a cliche To say I've no regrets and I've been lying anyway It's a page one read Rewrite Of every aspect of my life starting from tonight If I carry on this way, I know we're through oh, Baby, you love me then That's why I'm starting all over again Longing for more Hi, Marco. 
Hey Ben, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. How are you doing? Very well. I'm uh, I'm excited that we are we're finally getting a chance to speak. You've been awfully busy. <laughs> oh no, yeah. I'm sorry. I do apologize for uh, having to keep rescheduling. What was it, about five times. <laughs> oh no, not a problem. I know. Uh, I know you're constantly on the road. And uh, speaking of of the road, when we were first trying to schedule this, you uh, were about to perform at the Playing with Fire Festival in Omaha last month. How did that go? Oh, it was great. It was my second time playing that festival, actually. So I uh, did it in uh, 2013. Um, so a few years ago, and um, they kept trying to get me back the last couple of years. Um, and I just had I had a couple of visa problems because you guys make it very difficult for us. <laughs> I've spoken with uh, with Florence about that, and and she she kind of sh she shed light on how incredibly challenging it is to to grant an artist a visa to come perform something and how you need to book it before you have get the visa but you can't get the visa before you've booked it. it's it's yeah, one exactly. convoluted mess <laughs> exactly it's kind of a catch-22 <laughs> situation you could you can't get the visa unless you've got the gig in the diary and you can't get the gig in the diary unless you've got the visa it's like <laughs> so you've got some very trusting very um supportive promoters which um i do in um in the in the team that sort of books the Play with Fire Festival, they've they've become really close friends of mine actually. So, um, so they've been fantastic, and they they used a really good um, attorney that's based in Omaha, and she was she was amazing. Um, worked really hard to to make it all happen for for me and for for Ainsley Lister as well, who's another guy from um, from here who was on the on the bill as well. Yeah, I saw I saw that on the website, and the website describes the festival as a concert series for. And I'm quoting incendiary blues, rock, funk, R&B, and soul. And when I read that, I thought that's a perfect description of your music. I mean, it seems like you're a very natural fit for, for the festival. So it definitely makes sense that they were trying to get you back. I understand that your father was a professional musician when you were growing up. Did he play that same kind of music? No, um, he was never really a blues guy, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, got, I think I got the actual musicality and... The actual, you know, being able to play an instrument and having that kind of dedication to it, you know, physically, I got that from my, from my dad. But um, I think it's more from my mum that I got the actual style of music that I ended up get, getting into. She was sort of sort of into Motown and stuff that was a bit more on the soul side, you know, like uh, Marvin Gaye and Otis Redding and Martha Reeves and, you know, it's things that are kind of on the pop soul Motown sort of side. So I think that's where I got my kind of got drawn to the blues side. It was never really from, from my dad. My dad was more into like, David Bowie and um, Jerry Rafferty, like Frank Sinatra, uh, quite a, quite a broad, broad range of, of artists, but not really um, blues guys. So that was something I just, I just found myself when I was in my sort of early teens. I read that you started playing uh, acoustic guitar fairly young at age nine, but then heard a uh, voodoo child at, at 12. And, and that kind of changed your, the direction of, well, in many ways, your life. Do you remember what you felt? Yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those you know, kind of light bulb comes on moments when I heard that. Um, I, I, yeah, I started when I was nine playing acoustic guitar, so playing just on a classical nylon strung acoustic. Had a couple of guitar teachers who were kind of uninspiring. And then I had this guitar teacher come in that started showing me things like Guns N' Roses and Metallica and, you know, even things like Black Sabbath. You know, it's stuff that when you're like 11, 12, 13, it's a bit more, it's quite exciting to hear that kind of, that kind of stuff for the first time. So stuff that was more on the rock and metal side. And then, uh, and then as soon as he played, um, he put on Voodoo Child, I was just like, what is that? Because I just never heard a guitar played, played that way. And I've still, I still haven't to be fair. I mean, I've never heard anyone really nail that, the intro riff, especially. It's just the way that Hendrix played that. I don't know. It's just so fluid. And, but I don't know. It's just a, his touch, um, and phrasing and, the way you used the wah on that on that as well 
the tone. I don't know. It just really grabbed me. So it was, that was kind of a, a moment where I decided I want, I, I remember learning the riff, you know, as you do as a little kid to kind of, you know, kind of trying to get through it anyway. And um, I was like, I need an electric guitar to, to make it sound like it should sound or at least come closer. <laughs> I've seen videos of you covering Hey Joe and, yeah. and it, it's a wonderful version and I love the dynamics of it. Have oh, you thanks. covered Voodoo Child? Um, <laughs> I, or, or you've left that one alone? I, I, have, I have done, yeah, but um, I, I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't really want to do that song just because it's like so close to my heart that, um, and I don't feel like I could ever really do it justice. I mean, that the Hey Joe thing I, I do, and we do it really differently. So that's the only way that I feel that it's okay for me to do that because I do it so differently. Just doing a straight cover of a Hendrix song is like, I feel like there's no point in doing a cover unless you can even do something really different with it where people are like, oh, well, that's, that's cool. Or you do it the same, but you do it better. And no one's ever going to do it better than Hendrix did it. So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, I try not, so I try and avoid just doing like a straight cover, especially the Voodoo Child, because like I said, it's, um, it's a song that means so much to me that it's almost like I wouldn't want to ruin it. After that point, uh, did playing guitar consume all your free time or did you have any other interests? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, 12 to 18 years old. Yeah, I mean, not, not like entirely. I was never one of those players that, you know, like you hear like um, Steve Vai talking about how he played for, you know, nine hours a day or something like that. I was never one of those guys, but um, it did really become like a massive focal point in my life outside of, outside of school. Um, just going home and sitting and watching Live of the Other Cambo by Steve Ray Vaughan or I had the VHS version of that and, oh, nice. and watch it over and over and over again. Oh, and incredible, um, isn't it? Texas Flood in particular, like just the, the the very beginning of it would just like make me tingle all over. Oh, yeah, exactly. Me too. That was another another pivotal moment in my in my early teens when I first I can't remember who's I think I saw a clip on YouTube and then just bought the DVD and then just watched it religiously like every day. And yeah, that's it. I think it was Texas Flood. I think that was the first um, video I saw. I think it was on YouTube or something. Yeah, right after the intro, the first verse when he just like the dynamics, everything just comes oh, down, man. and he oh, it's perfect. Yeah, it's amazing. I think it was that, and then Lenny as well. And um, they were the two videos I'd seen, and then I bought the DVD, and then from there it was just like a and a bit of a Steve Ray Vaughan obsession, which I think most blues blues rock guitar players go through that Steve Ray Vaughan phase. Yeah, for sure. And like you, it sounds like I, I first heard of him. After he had passed, so I heard. I, yeah. I remember when and where I was when I heard the very first song I heard was, um, oh gosh, Crossfire from oh, yeah. Instead, um, <laughs> August of no July of nineteen ninety four. Yeah, yeah, because he died in nineteen ninety, wasn't it? Was it August nineteen ninety something like that? But yeah, some massive, um, massive influence on on me. And uh, you know, like I said, most most blues guitar players go through their Steve Ray Vaughan phase and just of sounding exactly like him when they play. Well, not exactly like him, but everyone's has trying to thing, right? trying to. Yeah, it's kind of a thing that a lot of players fall into a, a bit too much. I think there's so many players out there that are so SRV. There's there's one or two that can get away with it. Um, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, I think, is one example. I mean, everything he does, you can hear the Steve Ray Vaughan in it, but he does it so fucking well. You can let him get away with it. I purposely don't play a strat and didn't stop playing strats because I didn't want to just be another Steve Ray Vaughan clone. So that was one thing that kind of uh, got me away from that was I just was like, oh, I just need to play. I need to play different guitars. So I just avoided strats and have done ever since just to avoid all the cliches. Definitely. And, and I've spoken with many guitar players. Um, actually, the very first guest on the show was uh, Ian Moore. In the early 90s, uh, you know, being from Austin, he had been uh, anointed the 
like many people considered him to be the heir apparent, right? He will take carry the torch and move forward. And he had, I want to say, one, two records that were very much in, in that vein. Yeah. Um, you know, just muscular, high energy, blues, rock. And then he he shed it. And he shed that skin, that music, and for many, many years was, you know, playing acoustic solo shows and focusing on his songwriting. Yeah. And I feel like it's only been recently that he's kind of come back and and felt like there was enough distance between between what how he had started out and where he was now, that he could begin to embrace that again and play electric again and, and revisit that without right, fe- right. being feared of, of being pigeonholed. So I think, yeah, I think what you're describing is something that so many blues guitar players have had to, to face. And in many cases, like yourself, a change of instrument was part of uh, what it seems to have been one of the tools or the keys to trying to, to break away and, and find your own voice, which I feel like you've done beautifully. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Well, what's, the, what's that guy's name? I've not heard of him before. Ian Moore. Ian Moore. Right, okay. I'll yeah. Check him out. And if you, uh, I, I like that. Yeah, I, like, I like the fact that he just, um, you know, he had he had all that, and then just decided to ditch it all and kind of go in a completely different direction. As silly as this sounds, many of his fans were upset, yeah, and his right. record label was upset, and and many people were terribly disappointed that he had opted to do this when, you know, it's it's his music, it's his career, it's what, yeah. and he had the the courage, I think, to do what he felt was right. Absolutely, and, yeah. And I he's mean, still doing it now. That's, that's showing real artistic integrity um, rather than choosing, you know, the financial, he could have stuck with it and probably have more more financial success if, you know, the label were, were behind it and everything. But for his own instincts as, a, as an actual artist, he was like, I need to I need to get away and find, my, find myself and find my own sound rather than just being a, carrying on being the kind of clone or being the protege of uh, you know stuff stevie or whatever so I, that's really cool i like that at what point did you decide that you wanted to go to music school kind of uh, when was i about 16 when it was coming to that point where everyone was having to make a choice of what they were going to study at university and i was like either i went and did a kind of more academic degree and you know at that point obviously i was playing music i was playing a few different bands and I was starting to become fairly proficient at guitar, and it was just it was just that point where I needed to make a decision. And just I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I decided to jump, you know, both feet in and uh, feet first into into the music thing, and um, applied for a few different colleges in in the UK, and ended up moving down to Brighton, where where I still am today, and uh, doing the doing the degree in music, which was which was great, best best choice I made really, best choice I ever made. Dual degree and I imagine performance and, and something else? The degree is called um, professional musicianship, specializing in guitar. And there was a lot of different things that were involved in it, um, from performance to theory to sight reading to uh, session styles, different types of play. And I mean, it covered it covered a lot of bases, really. So it was um, it was a great course for me. Uh, some people, a lot of people mo- moan about it and that it didn't, they didn't get what they wanted from the course. Um, for me, it's not like I've ever had to. I've ever come out of that college and had that piece of paper and ever had to use it or put it in front of anyone and go, "Here's my CV," you know, "Here's my, here's my degree." For me, it just made me more. It just made me really focus on on the on music. You know, it gave me that chance from coming out of school where I had to focus on lots of different things to suddenly being just in that environment where all I cared about and all I all I had to concentrate on was just playing guitar and playing music and trying to decide what I wanted to do with kind of the rest of my life, really. I've spoken with uh, a couple of drummers who went to school, to music school, and ended up being session musicians uh, primarily. And they've shared that that foundation. In, in both cases, they played classical percussion in an orchestra and played in orchestras. 
And they felt like that gave them the discipline, the expertise, and the ability to really go into any situation and and excel as, as studio musicians. But it sounds like in your case, it was more so the focus. Uh, and being there enable you to fully focus and immerse yourself in the music. And it, if, if I'm guessing correctly, it wasn't necessarily a specific skill or or lesson that you learned there. It was just the ability to do it every day. Yeah, I'd say that's probably right. And um, I'd say I, I learned as much from the course and from the tutors as I did, as I did from fellow students, you know, surrounded by, you know, from in a class of 15 to 25 other guitar players and everybody's into their own different thing, whether it's jazz or uh, oh, I had a housemate who was really into his jazz music. So yeah, I picked up a few little little things from him um and uh you know guys that are into all their shred music and their metal music you've been surrounded by all these different guys that um that were into different styles different genres and had different techniques that they were good at and being a sponge rather than you know because some of the people that came out and maybe you didn't feel that they got the most from it were, were probably not just being sponges and just taking taking things from and learning from 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 everybody you know if they were just kind of set in their own ways and had their own ideas of what was good and what was bad, rather than just being trying to draw the positives from every different style, which I tried to do, you know, I was just trying to be inspired by every single guitar player that was there, whether it was a student or a teacher. Definitely. This seems like the best way to make uh, the most of it. As you were looking ahead and, and looking to complete your degree, what were your thoughts? What were you considering? What were you thinking of doing after you finished to be honest, I always wanted to do this. Um, I always wanted to go out and do my own thing. I was always, I was always the blues guy when I was when I was at college. So people knew I was the guy that was the singer, guitar player. It was into, it was into Steve Ray Vaughan and Hendrix and stuff like that. So, and that's all I ever really wanted to do coming out of it. I tried to do the whole, I don't know, having a covers band on the side thing. And you know, a lot of guys wanted wanted to come out of uh, out of that college and be session players. But I was. Even though I said like I was a sponge and I would draw from everyone, I, I always knew what I wanted to do and that I wanted to come out and be a you know a solo touring and recording artist. So that was always my plan from from the second I got there, really. And you've certainly succeeded at it. I understand that you spent uh, some time supporting uh, an artist, Danny Wilde, and having had that experience as a sideman, at least for for a moment. What did you enjoy the most about that role of, of a sideman, of not having to lead the band, if, if anything? And the reason I ask is that I've spoken with David Grissom, for example, who talked about how as much as he loves and enjoys having his own band and, and playing and writing and performing his own music, he shared that being a sideman was just, if anything, less stressful. So I'm wondering if that was your experience as well. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, before I before I went to the college, Danny was Danny Wild was the first artist, one of the first artists I'd, I'd ever heard that came from there because they would, the the college put out a CD every year um, with like ten of the sort of their best best kind of students or whatever that were that were from the college. So I listened to that CD and heard this one track, which was her just playing acoustic guitar. She's playing a I think it was an old Muddy Waters song or an old Howling Wolf song. Uh, so obviously that just really struck a chord with me so I was like oh who's this this is awesome um and it wasn't until like two years into my degree because she just finished that um I got the call to to go and audition for her so I was lucky enough to come straight out of straight out of the college straight out of finishing degree and go straight on the road and kind of cut my cut my teeth on the on the touring circuit playing for her so uh, initially there was pressure because I, I knew her and I knew that she'd just been signed and I was kind of a bit scared I and mean, I was I, I was still you know like 20 21 then so didn't really have any experience touring at all so it was the initial pressure but then as soon as I started getting on the road it was just, 
it was like as David Grissom said, it was um, so much easier than what I do now because I'm so, I'm so having to be in control of everything and everything's on me and the pressure's on me. I'm the, you know, the, the front man, but in that band it was easy. Just get up and play guitar. Now I have to worry about you know looking after my voice and. <laughs> Um, you know, back then it was just a party. Yeah, honestly, it was just a party. You know, I was just staying up late all the time, partying every night after every show. Obviously, I was younger and I didn't have to worry about singing. So, <laughs> but it was a great time. It was it was really fond memories of looking back on on that and touring across um, across Europe many times for my first uh, touring experiences. It was good. Speaking of leading a band, what do you look for in the musicians for your rhythm section in particular? With a drummer, it's all about just feel and groove mainly. I've had to sort of learn from trying out lots of different people. Um, so it's just having a good feel for the music and uh, having people that people that listen, listen to everybody in the room. I've had some drummers that technically are, are brilliant, but in this situation playing for me, sometimes if they're too regimental in their playing and too kind of mathematical, and that's not really for me. Um, for some kind of music, that's, that's perfect. But for when you're playing in a in a blues rock soul band you know it's um it's kind of heartfelt soulful music isn't it so you need a you need a drummer that can reflect that and has a has a decent feel so i mean the guy the guys i've got at the moment that um, are playing with me i've got a few a few different guys that can step in and out on the bass and drums but they're all players that have got great feel and really listen and know that you know it always helps if um if they're kind of multi-instrumentalists as well so they they know about guitar a little bit they know about bass a little bit sort of knowledge of harmony and uh, that helps with them just being able to understand the music understand where they fit into into the um into the band have there been many situations in which you might have passed on a musician who was very talented but just wasn't a good personality fit because i figure you spend so much time on the road with them that that i imagine has to factor into your decision uh, yeah absolutely i mean half, half about always finding people that you get on with so yeah i mean i've met lots of people that are technically brilliant but then you can kind of get a feel of how they're going to be on the road and if they're going to be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> because it, you, you do need to have a certain um, temperament to, to be able to do this job, to be able to be on the road for you know for so long and spend so much time in one, other, one another's company. And if you, if you get to the point where you miss home after like five hours on the road, then this, this job isn't for you. And that can't be you because I know you are constantly all over the place. Matt Schofield told me that the way he sees it he plays music for free. What he gets paid to do is to travel in a van and to be on the road. And on the other hand, Henrik Freischlader uh, told me that he actually thoroughly enjoys being on the road and sometimes gets antsy being at home. And that being on the road, if, if anything, is a more natural state for him or that he, very, he relishes it. At this point in your career, how do you feel about it? I change my mind about that all the time, but I think that's partly because of like, you know, like I, I love being on the road some, sometimes and then sometimes I, I do want to be home. But it just depends. It, with this job, like everything is ups and downs. Everything from, you know, like the hotels to the foods to the drives to the, the actual gigs to the to the audiences to the sound. Everything from one minute can be amazing to the next minute. It can be really difficult. So if everything's going really well, then I absolutely love being on the road. But um you know, if you, obviously you get problems every now and then, and and then it can get it starts getting stressful and tiring, and then and then you do want to sort of go home and recharge the batteries. And yeah, if it's been a stressful time, then you want to be at home. If everything's going great and everybody's having a good time, like recently we just finished um, a run of dates in um, like festival shows in France and Germany, and 
we just had the best time. Like everybody was, there was so much positivity going on with with me and the boys, and all having a good time. There was no real, real hitches. I mean, there was a few little little hiccups that we had to that we had to get over, a few little problems here and there, as there always is. But I honestly came back from this one we just finished, and uh, was kind of felt sad when I was coming back. And me and the boys all we we all said the same thing. We were like, oh man, I don't I don't want this this run to end. Um, <laughs> but then there's been times when I've been like desperate to get home. <laughs> so it's just it's just ups and downs it just it, that's that's one of the things where you need to have the personality that can um that can deal with that if you're if you're someone that really needs to have complete control in every situation rather than going with the flow and being able to handle that pressure then it's not for you ups and downs that's what i always say to people about this job is that it's you know and, and even the money as well you know ups, up and down you know sometimes you lose sometimes you win it's uh everything's uh you can't you can't really plan you can't really plan what sort of obstacle or situation can make it difficult for you to enjoy yourself while on stage? Well, the sound, uh, and the monitor monitor sound plays a big factor. Being able to hear hear myself and hear everyone around me well, um, and even even my boys being able to hear themselves well. Because uh, even like last weekend, we were playing a show, and my keyboard player had some problems with his monitor, and I could tell that he was getting agitated and slightly pissed off and then that obviously throws all of us it's funny how just one person in the band if they're having a shit gig and they're really struggling then it can affect the um kind of mood on stage for everybody <clears throat> whereas if you know you look around and everybody's having a great time you feed off that and it's all, yeah it's all about the energy whether whether it's coming from the band from from the boys on stage or um and it's really important for the for, to be able to feel that from the crowd as well that makes a huge difference in how the gig is because you can really feel that from stage if you can tell if people are, if there's a great energy in the room and uh, people are really up for it, then that will just feed us, and then the performance will generally be better. When the, when there's so much improvisation going on in what I do with my set, you just really get into it more if um, if you feel like people are into it. You've performed in so many different countries uh, in Europe and and beyond. Have you noticed any, at the risk of stereotyping or generalizing, have you noticed many differences in audiences in in each country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like English and um, Dutch audiences are a pretty noisy bunch. You know, they're they're there not only for the music; they're there to socialise and to to have a drink. So, and as long as the balance is okay, it's it's all right. But um, sometimes it can be annoying, and you, you have to tell you have to tell everybody politely to shut the fuck up. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but that's just the way that's just the way the audiences are. This is the way that it's just the way that it is. Whereas um, you go to like Germany um, or Switzerland, the audiences are amazing for. They're absolutely silent um, when you're playing, and then as soon as you finish playing, they make the biggest applauses and really show their appreciation. So, there, I find Germany is one of my favourite places to play for for the sort of, sort of music that, that we're doing, where it does require a bit of attention sometimes. And I like to play with dynamics and really bring things down sometimes. So, if you've got people talking, then that loses it, loses the impact. And then uh, in the states, it's great because because uh, you Yanks are like a quite a, quite a noisy, enthusiastic bunch, but in like the best way possible. So I just remember like a few, the last, when I was there, it was like a month ago yesterday, actually, that I played there. And um, we were doing this, we are doing like a slow blues and the intros normally, you know, get people like, in Germany, the people would be silent while I'm just playing a bit of a guitar piece. But I was, uh, it was a song called Have You Ever Loved a Woman? It's an old Freddie King song. 
And uh, when I started singing it, I had, there were people shouting out going like, I feel you, brother. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> like, normally, if people shout stuff out. It's, um, it's annoying. Like if it's in England and they're just shouting stupid stuff that they think is funny. But at least like the, the, the Americans were just like so into it. They're just like, I feel you. <laughs> Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, so that was so that was great. I, I actually loved that because um, it was like enthusiasm that they were just so excited that they had to shout something out. But at least it was in context with what I was actually doing (laughs) how would you describe your ideal gig in terms of venue audience do you prefer the more intimate smaller clubs the festivals or can they all be good or bad and there's really no favorite yeah i guess it just depends really i mean there's positives in in all of them whether it's like the big big gigs in front of thousands of people that's that's always fun obviously because it's games play in front of um in front of big audiences on a nice big stage but um i really love the small clubs as well when they're when they're absolutely packed you know we, we did one did a little club last weekend uh, in Germany, which is it's only like 120 people, but it was it was sold out, and obviously, obviously it's absolutely rammed in there. Just a little club, but the atmosphere is just just great, you know. And you get that many people crammed in, and I just like a, a hot hot sweaty gig where you can feel like you're really working hard, and there's good energy in the room, there's a good buzz, everybody's crammed in, everybody's like really forced to be in the music. There's no, Sounds like yeah. uh, you're describing El Mocambo, essentially. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. You know, you, you can you can feel the energy and the atmosphere and the excitement on that from what just from watching that DVD. You can feel like what what it would have been like to be there, because that's just a small club, right? Like, what was that? Like it's a couple of hundred or something. Have you found that over time, as you've gained experience and you've been doing this for longer, have you become more or less self-critical of yourself after each performance, or the same? probably the same yeah i reckon probably the same i'm self-critical like i think every every musician self-critical to a point i'm not too bad i know people that are far worse so i try not to i try not to uh, dwell too much on it you know like if i feel like it, it's been a bad show i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna not sleep at night because um, it just happens sometimes you're just not on your 100 percent game but i think I, but I do feel like i've improved as as time's gone on anyway so so that stops me being too self-critical because as long as I feel like I'm improving year upon year, then um, if I start feeling like I'm going backwards or getting worse, then I think um, I'd, that that would be a struggle mentally. But you know, I know some people that really, really sit and dwell on every performance afterwards. They'll they'll want to sit and talk about it and be like, "Oh, we can make this better. We can make this better." But I like to chill out after the gig. You know, that's the time when you when you need to relax. That seems like a a very positive, uh, healthy, healthy approach. I read in an interview, uh, I think it was from 2013, in which you said that you wrote every song on, on acoustic. So you started on an acoustic guitar. Do you still write that way? Yeah, absolutely. I've just been doing a bit of writing um, this afternoon. And uh, the last couple of weeks, I've started writing again for writing towards a new album. And um, I'm going into studio next week to go and start uh, just writing session. I've got a writing session in Wales next week for, for a week to basically start getting ready to go into the studio, hopefully the end of this year. But yeah, so I, I mean, I never really play electric guitar at home at all. I've just got loads of acoustics sitting around in in every room in my house, and I just pick those up. And the thing is, like, if a if a song really works and it and, and something really sticks out for me when I'm playing around or whatever with the guitar, and it and it works just acoustic and voice, then that's a great starting point for for knowing that it's going to work once you once you bring it to a to a full band situation. Have you found yourself ever writing songs or ideas coming to you when you're away from the instrument? Henrik uh, mentioned that when he's driving or when he's swimming, 
that ideas come to him. And if the idea seems to be good enough, he'll get out of the pool and actually go and, and record it uh, onto his phone. Yeah, that, that happens sometimes, yeah. Often when I'm driving, I'll have an idea come into my head and I'll have to pull over and put the voice recorder on and then just sing it down the phone. <laughs> and then uh, when, I, when, I get, when I get home, I'll listen back to it and it'll just sound awful because it's just uh, like this, this me singing like doodles down, a, down, an, down an Apple iPhone um, recorder. But it'll just be some melody that I've, I've thought of that'll, that'll work and then I'll pick the acoustic up and try and fit something over it. And yeah, I've, I've written a few things that way. A recent guest told me that it was quite an adjustment for him to learn how to write happy songs, that he was much more prolific when, when things were rough or when he was going through a difficult time in his life. Do certain moods or times in your life make you more prolific? Yeah, I mean, I, I go through phases of just having a real creative kind of mindset. They're the sort of times that I have to really jump on that. And it doesn't matter where I am, I have to find a guitar and do some writing because those movements don't come too often. And uh, yeah, it's funny, I was watching um, an interview with Johnny Lang earlier today and he was talking about that happy, the happy song thing and how that's really difficult to, difficult to write happy songs. And I think that's the case with everybody. It's far easier to, to pour your heart out about something that is, uh, you know, whether it's heartbreak or some sort of pain. It's just easier for, for, us, like, <laughs> for us musicians to write about that kind of stuff um, rather than trying to, trying to write something happy that doesn't sound a bit too twee. It's difficult. What do you do if if you write something and realize that it sounds very similar to something else? Do you typically just discard it, or do you try to tweak it and adjust it and, and try to make it work? Yeah, I guess it depends how similar it is. I mean, everything's a little bit stolen from somewhere. There's not there's not really too much um, there's not really too much original stuff left to play when it comes to like core putting it together a chord progression or or even riffs. You know, there's so many riffs out there. It's hard to kind of find your own thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can everything can get adapted a little bit, and it's and it becomes kind of unique. I don't know. I've never really, I don't think I've ever really written anything where I thought that's too similar to something else. I spoke with uh, Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers, and he said that that sort of thing happens all the time. And he was very um, practical about it, in which he said that no, you know, you, you just change a chord, you, you do something, and basically you can, that everything is fixable, and that by making a, f a few small changes here and there, you can very much make it your own and, and, and make it survive and, and, and be your own song and not be too derivative of, of the other song. So that's why yeah, I, I thought I'd ask. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all you've got to do is change one little bit, and then it's, uh, and then it's something totally different. It's fine. <laughs> you get it's kind of like have you have you I'm sure you've you've heard this before, but sometimes you're watching a uh, I've I've noticed at least watching a TV show and you hear a song that's supposed to be something I don't know back in black, but they've changed like one of the chords yeah. because they don't have the license to it, so yeah, it's like yeah. a slightly off color like different version of a song that you know. It always sounds so weird. I've heard a few things like that, and it's like, it really throws you because you you know the song, and then it just throws in some weird chord, and you're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever find yourself writing something in a in a style or a genre that is uncharacteristic for you? I don't know. I don't think even if I write things that are a little bit that start off a little bit out there, I, they always end up coming back to a place. Without sounding pretentious, that is some that is very me, you know. If I, especially when I start singing, like I, I only have one sort of way of singing, and that's that's my way, which is kind of on the bluesy soul sort of side. So yeah, I've never written anything that's been way out there. I don't think. I mean, but the spectrum of sort of stuff that I do, anyway, is is fairly broad. You know, everything from from blues to like funk rock to 
type of soul. You know, if you listen to my last few albums, there's stuff that's quite heavy, quite hard rock, and then through to really soulful. I don't know, from like a song um, "Losing You" from Live at the Royal Albert Hall album, which is quite got some real heavy moments in it, through to my latest album. There's a song called "You've Changed," which is quite pretty much like a mainstream pop tune. So it's quite it's quite a broad range of sort of styles that I do anyway. But I think it all sounds consistently like me. And I think that's a testament to how how you've succeeded at defining your own voice, both literally and, and, and musically. And speaking of that, do you do you listen to music along those genres, you know, R and B, soul, blues primarily, or do you find yourself do you listen to a wide range of music? Yeah, I listen to a wide range of music. Today I've listened to Chris Stapleton. Oh yeah, Traveler. Yeah, um, no, I just I just heard the new album because um, I went to uh, I flew to Holland at the weekend to go see my friend. He gave me a bunch more tattoos. I got a tattoo artist friend, and uh, he showed me, and he put the um, the new album on while I was getting tattooed, and we just listened to that like three times. Um, so that's great. Yeah, the new album. Um, so I'm a big Chris Stapleton fan. But then um, what else was I listening to? Blackstone Cherry. Yeah, 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 definitely. Arrival Sons, kind of more, more like real rock stuff through to light country. Heavy stuff to country to pop to soul and R&B and Motown. So it's quite, it's quite broad. I'm wondering if there are any specific singers that you feel have influenced the way you sing and that I, I think I can more or less piece together or speculate on how, what some of your guitar influences might have been. We've talked about you know Hendrix, of course, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and, and moving beyond that and evolving and then infusing a healthy dose of, of your own sound and, and creating that voice on the guitar. Singing-wise, are there any singers that you particularly admired or emulated or influenced you? I think like early on it was it was Steve Ray Vaughan and um, John Mayer, but then it was kind of like Otis Redding, Paul Rogers, and then um, I was always singing a bit too much in my throat and singing a, trying to force the huskiness a little bit because of the guys I was listening to who have that naturally. Whereas now I'm kind of uh, smoothing out a little bit and finding my own voice a little bit more. So it's not so much that I'm trying to emulate someone else as just to find what my not, what my actual proper natural natural singing voice is. Have you worked with someone on that? Yeah. Um, so when I was um, so last year, just before we went into the studio to do um, the Time Has Come album, uh, my record label put me put me in with a um, one of the one of the best vocal t- um, tutors here in in England, and uh, I did. I did a whole bunch of lessons with with her um, before we went into the called the vocals, just so we could get my um, get my voice up to scratch, so that I could not only find my own voice and kind of sing, you know, with better technique and better breathing and stuff, but also um, to not only make me sound better on the when we came around to recording, but also so that I could actually have some um, uh, endurance in the studio because before I was kind of you know doing a couple of hours of vocal takes and then that would be my voice you know done for the rest of the day, whereas that you know we couldn't afford to afford to be doing that so so it's kind of uh, get my vocal uh, my singing kind of endurance up as well from doing that and it, it totally worked before you know like i said i was, I was blowing my voice out within two hours and um, then we went in to do the latest album. we did like a week of a whole week of you know doing five hours five hours of vocals a day really worked really helped at what age did you actually start singing full-time you mentioned that you had some bands when you were a teenager were you already singing there or was it not until after you went to music school no, I, st- I did start before I went to music school. Only just though. I think I was maybe 15, 16 when I started. So it did come quite late compared to the guitar. And wasn't something that came as naturally as the guitar and 
wasn't something that I was so confident with and, and still I'm not as confident with as the, as the guitar playing. I uh, still feel like I've got a lot to learn. But yeah, really glad that my, um, my dad kind of forced me <laughs> to uh, just start singing. Forcefully encouraged. I remember him just saying, go, on, just have, go and have a go and record some stuff. We had this little um, multi-track recorder and it, he was like, oh, just, go and, just go and record some stuff, play some guitar and have a sing. And um, yeah, so I kind of locked myself away in the little room, singing really, singing really quietly so no one, no one would hear me. But yeah, that's how, that's how it started and glad, glad I did. And I think within, within the year... Within probably a year, I was I was gigging and singing, singing and playing guitar in front of the band. So, so glad I did. Do you feel like once you you started singing and in, in fronting the band, that it changed the way you played guitar at all? And the reason I ask is that I have a, a friend who told me that when he started singing, it completely changed the way he played guitar. I recently heard an interview with Richie Kotzen who said that yeah. when he started singing, it completely changed the way he, he played guitar. He learned to, you know, insert more space and dynamics and played more simply and focused more on his phrasing. And then other folks have told me that it made absolutely no difference to their guitar playing. So I'm wondering, what was your experience? I don't know. To, to be honest, I, I can't really think um, about it. I reckon I must have changed the way I play a little bit from, from singing, but not that I can think of, like, noticeably. I think it's probably just a natural, a natural thing of no, you know, leaving more space when I start singing. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love Richie Cotson as well. I'm a massive Richie fan. I know. I remember seeing him, um, hearing him say that he was a big fan of Hall and Oates because he does a, a cover of a song called Sarah Smile, which is a Hall and Oates song. And I, I love Hall and Oates as well. But that's like so pop R&B, you know, kind of soul. So it's kind of a shock for me when I first heard that because I first knew him from the, the Shredder days. You know, when he was on Shrapnel Records and. There was those early, the early albums he did, Electric Joy, Fever Dream, and the first Richie Cotson one, which is all very shreddy, instrumental, jazz fusion. Like a little while after that, I first heard, um, what was it called? Um, Motherhead, the Motherhead's Family Reunion album, which is really wicked. Like, it's such a cool album. It's like, uh, I think it was the first sort of solo album he did where he was really singing. It's a really nice um, blend of rock and soul, like an old school R&B. <laughs> that was when I first heard how much of a great singer singer he was, and he's only got better since then. He was singing a bit more in his throat back then, and I know he had um, vocal problems and had surgery, and now he's got way way better technique. And just that man, he just sounds like Chris Cornell, but he can play guitar like an absolute beast as well. So it's a <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I, I got to do a tour with him, um, so I supported him on five shows here in the UK. That was oh, like, wow. back in uh, yeah, back in two thousand Two thousand eleven, I think. So, we, so we got to hang out a bit, and um, I got to see him. Mainly, got to watch him play every night, which is uh, which is wicked. Uh, being a big fan, and then getting to play with him every night was cool. Must have been a thrill. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times now dynamics in your playing and in your shows, and I haven't had a, the, the pleasure of of seeing you perform live, but I've watched many videos of you even before preparing for this interview, and and have noticed that and and your phrasing, your dynamics, your I think you have it all together, and I really enjoy the way you play guitar, as well as, of course, your songs and, and your singing. The focusing for a moment on, on the guitars, what are you looking to improve on, if anything? Because it seems like you're, like you have a really, really solid skill set right now. Thank you very much, first of all. I don't know. Um, for me, at the moment, it's, uh, I'm just focusing really on just songwriting um, and singing. You know, I used to be all about the kind of technical side and trying to trying to play faster and 
you know, looking at all that sort of technical stuff when I was younger and, you know, working with sweet picking and alternate picking and hybrid picking and all that sort of stuff. But I've just got, luckily I've just got better in a real like natural way rather than having, rather than actually sitting down and working out exercises and that sort of thing. I think from just, um, just playing live so much, I've just, I've just gradually, I've just got better year on year as a, as a guitarist anyway, without really having, without really focusing on it and sitting down and doing scales and exercises and, you know, watching instructional DVDs and all that sort of stuff like I used to when I was younger. Now I'm more focused on the, just write, writing songs and, and, and the vocals because they're the two weaker parts of my game, I think. So I think the guitar is okay. The guitar part is okay. Um, so I'm yeah, just trying to work on every other aspect so I can just be nicely well-rounded. It's funny, uh, Matt Schofield said something very similar to what you just said, where, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but like the guitar playing is okay. I'm pretty happy with that. But now, now I'm, I'm focusing on my voice and my songwriting. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of, of Matt, uh, Henrik, uh, Derek, I imagine, and I've seen videos of you uh, sharing the stage with them, and you might have spent uh, some time together either touring or at festivals. They're all phenomenal musicians, and I'm wondering if you've picked up much uh, from each other, either in terms of inspiration or maybe even on the business side of things. How much time have you had to spend with those, those guys? Well, I did 15 shows with, with Matt a couple of years ago. We got to, we hung out a little bit. Um, he was a little bit uh, shyer than than Henrik. Say, um, me and Henrik are really really close. So I absolutely love that guy to bits. He's a, I was a huge fan before I met him, and then since meeting him, uh, even bigger fan because he's a really really like lovely person as well, and um, kind of given me given me some really cool opportunities, like the playing on the latest album of his, the the Blues for Gary Moore album, which is cool, and inviting me over to Budapest in Hungary to go and to go and play that first show that they did together for for the release of that album. We've bumped into one another a lot in the last couple of years. I played with me in France last year. He came and joined me on stage for my set. And then we played again together not long after that as well. Yeah, he's a real, real... Oh, we finally played on my album as well, which is cool. Yeah, he's been, he's been wicked and I've learned a lot from him. Absolutely love his playing. He's got great technique, but everything he plays I find really soulful as well. And... He's got the whole thing, I think, as well, because I, I really like his voice. I think he's got a really soulful, really great, great tone in his voice, um, and his songs are wicked as well. Brill again, a broad spectrum of of styles that I think he brings to the the game. It's not one dimensional at all with anything that he does. All his albums are very different, I, I find. So yeah, big big fan of him um, as a player and as a person. I share the sentiment. I haven't had I've spoken with him, but I haven't had a chance to meet him in person. But Speaking of that, I, I'm still holding out hope that next time you're you're back here, uh, maybe you'll find the time to make it out to Austin. Yeah, and, uh, that'd be great. I think you'd thoroughly enjoy a visit here, and I look forward to that happening someday. Ben, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're tremendously busy. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Marco, thank you very much, man. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed chatting to you. 